when you're dealing with IT4D, you know, for the blocking world, you need to account for building capacity. So delivering the service is important, but you also want to augment the people and train them on the job so that they are able to learn on the job and become better doctor like. A wise man once said. A wise man once said. The best way to predict the future is to create it. You're about to experience a next level show. Scientists, entrepreneurs, thought leaders. You're listening to the Future of Humanity podcast. Welcome back, or if this is your first time, welcome to the show. My name is Carl Taylor, and my mission is to educate you on just what the future of humanity may hold, and more importantly, ensure you are equipped to be able to make informed decisions in your own life and help shape the society that we live in. Now, today's episode is with an incredible woman who has had a fascinating career, and we are discussing augmented reality, we're discussing the future of health, We're discussing visualization of the invisible. We are discussing wearables. We're discussing the trends that we're seeing in terms of society moving forward. Now, joining me in this discussion is Dr. Layla Allam, a scientist and the co-founder and chief of design and innovation at ArcSense, a tech startup in wearables for aged care. Now, Layla is also an adjunct professor in human-computer interaction at UTS and holds a PhD in AI and cognitive psychology. She was principal consultant at ThoughtWorks for two years and principal research scientist at CSIRO, one of the world-leading research organizations for 23 years. She co-edited three books on human factors in augmented reality and virtual reality environments. Layla was also awarded the 2013 New South Wales State Innovation Award in R&D and was a finalist for the 2015 Women in Tech Outstanding Achievement Award. Now, Layla's clients include Boeing, Rio Tinto, Department of Health and Aging, 3M, various government departments, and many more. It is an absolute honor and privilege to be able to share with you the amazing contributions to the world that Layla is working on. So get ready. Let's welcome Dr. Layla Allam. So I'm excited for today's episode. We are joined by Layla Allam and Layla has had a fascinating career and does so many things. And you know what? One of the things that's most interesting is that in 2013, she won a state innovation award. Uh, Layla, can you tell us a bit about what the award was won for and, and you know, tell us the story around that? Sure. So that award, we um, won it uh, with my research team. I was then a, a principal scientist at CSRO, Digital Productivity and Services. And it was uh, an award that we won for the work we did for Boeing. Uh, Boeing is a big manufacturing company and based in, with a headquarter in Seattle. And they had visited us uh, and um, looked at some of the work I was uh, doing then with my work, with my team and loved it. And they said, Oh, can we buy this? And, uh, and I said, No, we're not in this business of selling product. I'm sorry. We're going to actually come and find out what you want to use it for. And basically, one of the problems they were having is that aircraft maintenance is a big issue for them. And they have very, very specialized uh, skills in the head office. And often they are re- having those requests from a technician, any part of the world that says, can you help me fix this? Any minutes lost in the flight, not being able, able to fly is costing a lot to business. 
hence the need of a response just in time. It was not about delivering data or information. This is really about delivering know-how, expertise that is uh, in someone's head that is not codified in any technical document. So we built a, a remote field assistant system using augmented reality um, and uh, we're able to demonstrate the use of it to Boeing and uh, build a business case for it. Like uh, it cost them $24,000 to fly a specialist to Doha, let's say. And for that price, they basically deliver that uh, expertise when needed. Other time it's needed for improved productivity, but mostly for the airline so that they don't have the aircraft uh, sitting on a tarmac. I think I saw a video where online where you demonstrated this. So just for the guys listening, you know, what you're talking about here is is kind of tech support remote assistance yeah. of the future, right? With I think there was a quote where you said having access to expert information is great, but having access to an expert is better. And this mm. is kind of like bringing an expert in from anywhere in the world exactly. into augmented reality view and being able to essentially show you real time what to do click you know exactly click that or screw that left or pull that yeah. piece out so there's two things here that are of value the first one is having the, that specialist basically in your back seeing what you see and telling you what to do and how to do it and the other one is also that uh, the information is actually in your line of sight so as a, a technician your hands are busy with tools and you're doing things with your hand and having the information on your in your line of sight, it directly in the place where you're working, increases your ability to do things on time, but also reduces errors because you're not getting the information some, from somewhere and then applying it. Like I'm thinking, like what would the old school way of been doing it would have been? What having a procedures manual that you would check next to you? Yeah, and then you will be looking at the procedural and then come and make sense of it to say where am I at and what to do. Or here you're having the information exactly in your line of sight without having to, to, to move your head. from Because that's the thing. If you get the information from a space and you do the task in another space, that switching, it's not just about memorizing. It actually increases your cognitive load because you are still having trying to make sense and map the two spaces together. With augmented reality, you have that in your line of sight where you need it. And you reduce that cognitive load and reduces errors as well. So that has been sort of scientifically demonstrated, and that's why there's huge value in all this industrial connected device application to use augmented reality as the user interface for this type of uh, solution so that you are augmenting the person, you're not adding to their work. So that's really interesting. I mean, this idea of augmented reality, we've actually had a previous guest on the show who was a pool manufacturer utilizing augmented reality as a sales tool and, and a designing tool for pools. They were building backyard swimming pools in an augmented reality space, being able to demonstrate it to the client then and there. And it was you know, fantastic in the commercial sense. But what you're talking about here is now as a business, this is really becomes both a training tool and a support tool. Because I can imagine that one of the, the benefits of having this real-time training through augmented reality is yes, you're supporting them, but at the same time, they're probably learning far faster. Is, is that something that your research showed? That's exactly right. So because time is critical, because you've got to actually get the engine going or whatever part you're fixing uh, going ASAP, because any time lost for the aircraft is actually uh, costing to business. What happened is initially it's really about getting that expertise and know-how just in time, get the job done first. But then after that, there is a debrief and that's where training, learning uh, occurs. Is like, 
why did I get you to do it this particular way? It's because X, Y, and Z. And then there is the explanations and so forth. And because you just completed the task and then you have access to that specialist for the debrief, you're actually learning on the job. And that also has a boost in productivity for business because in the future of work, we will be learning on the job all the time, all the time, continuously. So learning on the job is not just about having the right data, the right information. It's actually also having that interaction with someone who knows a lot more than you do. Yeah, I mean... Having that interaction at the time that it's needed when you're learning, not, not taking in a classroom to learn and then get back into the workplace, but actually uh, just in time learning and training. One of the things that comes to mind is a potential future of education, if you like, or even a future service for businesses is you know, outsource tech support where it's like you've got experts on demand who just connect via augmented reality to assist you on that particular task or job. Uh, I totally agree. And initially, I thought the value prop was really around uh, reducing the, um, um, the time that the equipment is not working. But then I realized that, no, with this type of technology, you can also um, innovate in business model. If mm-hmm. a piece of equipment is critical to a business, it needs to be operational 24 hours. Any minute or any half a second lost is actually costing uh, a lot to the business. Then you can have a service where you ensure that you're going to have the specialist on the, in the line helping out ASAP any time of the day. Whereas if it's a, a piece of equipment that is not so critical, you can actually uh, cater for maybe a 10 or 15 minutes delay or even maybe an hour, then you, you can cost your delivery of that service differently. So you can have a, a value-based model, business model, that is depending on the criticality of the, the piece of equipment you are delivering the service for. And that's where the innovation is. So yeah. it allows new B2B type of uh, um, deals. You did that work with, with Boeing. Has that then work extrapolated off into other areas? Like where is that heading now? So very good questions. My big interest is in the health space. And I'll talk about some of the work uh, I've done in that space uh, shortly. Yes, a technology like this would can definitely be used in uh, remote delivering uh, delivery of uh, health services with the view that it's not an interaction between the specialist and the patient, but it's actually an interaction between a specialist and maybe a nurse that is examining the patient. And therefore, the patient gets the benefit of having a specialist because a specialist is augmenting the nurse. The nurse gets to learn on the job because she actually gets to do all the examination of the the patient and gets the advice and recommendations of a specialist in situ while they're doing the examination. And the specialist gets to do it from their office instead of having to fly them. So it's beneficial for for the uh, the three parties involved. Yeah, fantastic. I've done some early investigation for applying this model in a developing country from Morocco. And I've contacted a company called the, the Medical Caravan. And what they do is actually have specialist doctor delivering their services voluntary to people in the countryside. And of course, the issue is for them to stop their work and maybe over the weekend drive the car for maybe six, seven hours to get to a, this kind of mobile clinic and deliver the service. And we, we are having conversation with them now to say, well, why don't we send medical students to those villages, but augment them with a the specialist? So the specialist can, is still there, but at a distance remotely. And the, the patient in the village could still get the benefit of having a specialist with, uh, examining them. 
So having a proxy, but a proxy that is from the medical practice, if you know what I mean. This essentially allows, I mean, yeah, you know, we look at the internet and think about how that has dramatically opened up and globalized the world and given access to information to, you know, remote areas. This is taking it to kind of like another level though, because it's no longer just, oh, you've got access to the information or maybe you Skype them in. This is is far more real-time access. It's real-time access. And uh, the beauty now is that there are a lot of uh, villages now that have uh, 4G. Yes. Uh, enable that uh, with, with 4G. And also when you're dealing with the um, IT4D, you know, for the blocking world, you need to account for building capacity. So delivering the service is important, but you also want to augment the people and train them on the job so that they are able to learn on the job and become better doctors in, in this uh, in this. Uh, yeah, so, so I mean, that is awesome to hear. And I mean, this is not just the only area of healthcare that you have been working on. But before we get to that, one of the things I did want to touch on is I remember we had a conversation a little bit earlier about cognitive load, and you mentioned it a bit earlier in the episode too. You mentioned this this concept of cognitive load, and I know that you were working with pilot training around cognitive load, and that obviously, I'm sure there's many industries that cognitive load comes into it. So for those listening, can you explain what cognitive load is and maybe tell us a bit more about the pilot training um, story that you were telling me about before. Okay. So cognitive load is a concept from uh, cognitive psychology, and it's basically saying, you know, how, what is the the load that you have on your brain and whether you're actually uh, working at full capacity or whether you still have some neurons to do other things. So one uh, test that is often done, done for measuring cognitive load is to get someone to do a task and then while they are performing the task, you ask them a question that has nothing to do with what they're doing. Some people will hear the question and won't have the attention to respond to it because they're too busy with what they're doing. Some people won't hear it at all, and some will hear it and are able to answer it. And that gives you an, an indication of whether they, are, they still have some free neuron <laughs> that are still available to actually process new information. And that's the notion of cognitive load. Before we move on from there, I have many memories as a teenager where I would be so busy doing something in my head and parents would be like, hey, they'd ask you to do something and you'd maybe grunt it in acknowledgement, but you didn't really, I, I didn't really hear what they said. Is that an example of cognitive load in that my brain was focused on something else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I genuinely didn't hear them. It wasn't that I wasn't paying attention. Well, I suppose I wasn't. But okay, that's good. That's- it's when you saw so much in your head that you actually can't process anything else uh, around you, right? So what happened when you're at full capacity and you, let's say you are driving and you are so in your head because you're worried about work, worried about family, whatever it is, and sometimes you drive and you get home and you don't even remember who has been driving. You don't say, so how did I meditate? Because you, you've been so much in your head that your head has not even been the one driving. It's actually the automatic system that <laughs> has been doing most of the driving, which is scary when you think about it. So it does put us in danger when we are uh, working, especially in dynamic and complex environment. Going back to people that are training pilots, most of the training is really around cognitive load because you need to be able to fly a plane at not full capacity so that you can actually take into account any enforcing and plan event. And if you can't take those into account because you're so full in your brain, 
then you're putting uh, your passenger and yourself at risk. Good pilots are the ones that are able to fly an aircraft and, and not full capacity. So when we started talking to them uh, and realized that most of the training was really about cognitive load, we said, would you see, would you see a value uh, in uh, representing that load? What uh, this uh, interaction has led to is that we were we explored ways to measure that load. So using a galvanic skin response, we were able to uh, detect the, the, the load of the, the pilot and be able to visualize it and represent it. And then the idea was like, where's the value for the pilot or for the instructor? And what we uh, quickly found out is that after the simulation training session, having that visualization in situ with what the pilot has done had really augmented the interaction. They were able to identify uh, errors that the, the pilot had made, reacted to things instead of being pro- proactive. Are you saying like in the recording of what they'd done, you could see a correlation of when they made mistakes and because you were visualizing their cognitive load, you could see what that they, they correlated to high, high cognitive load? It, it helps to explain the, the, the behavior of the pilot. There are times where they are really so tunneled vision, they are just reacting, reacting to whatever happens. Uh, it seems to correlate to when they are in high cognitive load. And of course, you don't want that. You want to be at a lower cognitive load so that you're actually still having a good situation awareness and be proactive instead of reactive. Proactive is less dangerous. Uh, you could also identify opportunity where uh, you were not at full capacity and you, you took it easy. <laughs> instead of proactively start uh, calculating your distance to the other aircraft or something like that, you, you didn't actually take that opportunity to start doing it until events started happening and you start processing it. So again, well, when things are calm, here's the opportunity to start preempting again. And that really has uh, was valuable for the instructors and the pilot because they could better um, qualify what would be the best area to work on in the next uh, simulation training. To measure something like cognitive load, I mean, that to me, as someone who's obviously not an expert in the field, like it almost seems like, oh, that sounds great. Yeah, we'll just visualize cognitive load. But hold on, that's going on in their brain. How do you actually measure that? Do you have sensors on the body, on the brain, or is it far simpler than that? Like, is it looking at eye movements? Like, how, how do you measure cognitive load? So there's a number of scientists who have looked at that, and we, we uh, took the measurement of galvanic skin response, which is like a little uh, sensor that you put on that, that takes the pulsometer of, on, your, on your finger. But uh, you could also measure cognitive load from EEG signal. We decided not to go with the EEG signal because we thought if we put something on, on people's uh, head and they are not wearing it in their work, that will compromise the experiment. We used EEG for fatigue monitoring. So again, that's another thing that, of course, you know, when you're tired, your eyes started blinking, you start feeling tired, you start not feeling, uh, thinking not really sharply and so forth. But what about if you are a driver or pilot and, and have an awareness of uh, your, your fatigue and the risk you're putting yourself into? So we have done some work in this uh, real-time detection of microsleep where you put the uh, EEG uh, sensor. Uh, so this is work we've done with a startup company called SmartCat. It was their IP. They used a sleeper theory and the signal from your brain to be able to detect microslips, you know, the tiny little slips that you may experience. We worked with them to actually develop uh, the app 
to allow the truck driver to monitor this, the, the fatigue and level of alertness and basically reduce their risk of, uh, of accident. I mean, that's fantastic. I mean, I have heard of, I can't remember which car manufacturer, but I had heard of a car manufacturer that had like sensors in the rearview mirror or something that was monitoring your eyes uh, to try and detect when you seem to be sleepy and it like blast an alarm at you to be like, wake up. When your eyes start blinking, it's, it's too late. Whereas uh, from if you get the signal, <clears throat> sorry, from uh, your brain, then you can actually have a much bigger window. And the bigger the window is for reaction, the safer it is for you. I mean, one of the things I remember you saying, we've had a conversation before, was about bringing what's invisible to visible. And so what you're talking about here is getting before the eyes blinking, which are more visible interactions. It's, it's how do we detect it earlier? Exactly. So it's something that is really passion of mine is to say, what's the role that technology can play to improve people's awareness of what's happening within them? And that awareness of you and, and how your body function, your brain function, whether it's fatigue or cognitive load or stress, helps you better become a better person, helps you uh, manage this better. And I talk about the concept of augmented humanity in the sense of the role that technology can play to make you more aware of things that are inside you, that you become aware of it, but when it's too late, you know, like you could have, you can wait until your eyes blink, or you can wait until you have a lower back pain. But what if you start becoming aware of that way before that, so you can prevent? And prevention is the future of health, right? You can't wait until things happen and then you manage them. You want to start preventing it. That's kind of the work that I'm currently doing right now in, with my startup. I'd love to talk about what you're doing with, with ArcSense. So, yeah, tell us a bit about what, what you are working on in, in the, the area of health. The area of uh, prevention of health. So I've, uh, backward a little bit, I've done a huge uh, trial um, at the national level of uh, people managed uh, with chronic disease. And their interest with, with this was to actually see whether remote monitoring of patients with chronic disease from their home, uh, whether we can uh, help uh, reduce the visits to hospital and whether we can actually help them manage their condition better by doing remote monitoring. And, and this was really about people that already had chronic disease, right? And because it's the cost to our society is so high, <clears throat> we're trying to explore ways to reduce this by doing the remote monitoring. And one of the things that I found out in that study was uh, that really came obvious is that there was also value in self-monitoring. Yes, you had the peace of mind knowing someone was getting your vital signs and look after you and have the doctor in your back, basically. And uh, But you also learn about your numbers. You learn about your condition because you actually see it on a daily basis. And that is empowering. That gives you a sense of empowerment because you start making better decisions about about it. It kind of goes back to that real time. We were talking about everything. It's about bringing everything far more real time rather than looking at it in the past of, oh, here's what was happening. Exactly. And it's real time, but it's also, you know, seeing how it fluctuates. You know, if you're looking at uh, you have a heart condition, you want to know your numbers over the week and what's normal for you and what's not, and then you start making the right decision for yourself. Yes, it's time to go out or stay home. So uh, I, this is where I really realized it was not just the big brothers watching you and monitoring you from a distance, which was the real-time assistance we were talking about, but also that self-monitoring, how valuable it was in terms of empowering people in better managing their condition. 
And I said, well, what if we can do the same thing, but instead of waiting for people to be sick, help them prevent being sick to start off with and be at a more preventative aspect. So access is really looking at helping people monitor their resilience to stress, to chronic stress, uh, because chronic stress is like a huge component of chronic diseases, almost 80%. So we tend to say, yeah, soldier on and you do with it. And uh, as you experience more and more stress and it, when it becomes more chronic and you lose your vitality and your sleep and all that sort of things, you, you tend to, oh, yeah, I'll take some vitamin, I'll sleep a bit better until you actually get sick. <laughs> until you have the diagnosis, and that's too late. So, so what if we can actually help them be aware of their resilience to stress, their body's resilience to stress? And we're using a measurement called heart rate variability, which basically tells you you can't do anything about stress that comes around you or even stress that you generate with your own brain, but what you can do is your response to it. So if you can monitor your response to it, and have a, a sense of whether you're getting better or worse in responding to stress, then you have a liver. You have something you can control. You have something you can do with. You can start hacking. So oh, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try to see if uh, I can improve my sleep uh, and whether that's improved my resilience to stress. And if it works, you're going to continue doing it. This is a way of, you know, I'm just trying to wrap my head around this. You're saying this creates a way of being able to far more measure the impact of things you might be doing to try and improve your stress. So for example, if you were a trialing meditation or a breathing technique, exactly. you exactly. now can actually have hard data to show whether it's actually helping exactly. as opposed to just your maybe cognitive bias of thinking it's working. Yeah, yeah, ex- that's exactly right. So there's a huge practice that are evidence-based that, sh- that are really recommended to reduce stress and manage stress, but you need to find the one that works for you. So you need to try a number of things and to find out what works for you. You can have just the feeling, oh, it sounds good. Or you can have the actual number. It says, oh, I've actually improved it by 20%. I'm going to stick with this. I'm going to do more of this. Yeah. I'm going to do my deep breathing. Oh, I'm going to do my meditation. Or I'm going to do my 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, whatever it is. There's a host of uh, practices and, and apps out there on the, uh, that are available to help people with managing stress. But what would be extremely valuable if people actually have that monitoring as well element. So they can have that feedback and close the loop and also have the biofeedback. That is one way of empowering people. Give them a tool that allows them to experiment with themselves. Yeah. So with ArcSense, what is it right now? Is it an app? Is it a framework that other apps plug into, like an API? Like what exactly is ArcSense at least today and what will it be? Yeah, so it's a, it's a platform, so you can integrate data from other apps uh, if you're using other apps for monitoring your sleep or your diet and so forth. Uh, it has a, a way to measure your heart rate variability and monitor this real time and has a, an AI component to actually start getting a sense of learning where, what learning about you and what seems to be working uh, for you so that you can actually have a, a companion to get you to stick with your journey into improving your way of managing stress. And the other thing also is to get people started on a journey is easy, but getting them to stick to a journey of health and well-being is the hardest part. Yeah, so definitely. seeing the result is great, and, and but we can't assume that just seeing the result is actually going to solve the whole problem. 
I'd love to speculate for a moment. I mean, you know, we've talked a lot about what's already been happening and what is already here today. But a big part of what I like to explore in Future of Humanity is, okay, well, this is where we're at today, which is so exciting. But this is just the beginning of something far larger. We've suggested a couple of things that we might see in the future of, uh, you know, future of healthcare being far more preventative rather than maintenance. We've talked about the future of, of work and training being far more this aug- augmented reality, real-time experts. But what else? I mean, based on what you see, what do you think things are headed with the use of augmented reality, internet of things as well? Like, how does that come into it, this, this world of sensors and everything being online? Where do you th- see things headed? In my view is that convergence of the wearable, uh, the sensors and the AI, the cloud, is really changing what it means to be human. And that's the, the stuff that interests me. It's not just the tech. The tech is there in, in everywhere. And, and I'm interested in really how we as a human are evolving in our understanding of ourselves and our connection with others and how we can use technology to improve this, not reduce it. Uh, it's a reflection of what it is to be human. I'm not talking about the cyborgs. I'm not talking about, you know, bringing the digital. It is, the, the line is quite blurry now between, you know, where the digital and the physical uh, gets in. I'm not talking about this type of uh, sort of uh, cyborg type of human. I'm just talking about even with the current technology, how we can use it to augment our perception of what it is to be human mm. and what work we can do for us to become better human. I came very much through a personal development world, right? From the age of uh, well, 17, 18, I started going to seminars, reading personal development books and, and this idea of enlightenment. Are you talking about this more inner knowledge thought process and, the, and technology making this more tangible and maybe less woo-woo? Or what exactly are you kind of referring to when you say? Uh, look, everybody has their own journey, and I don't think there is one journey for for all. Uh, you have looked at all the YouTube videos and taught yourself a number of things because the knowledge is out there and it's available. I I am interested in neuroscience, even though I'm a cognitive scientist, because I am becoming more and more aware of the trick that the mind plays on you and how you can learn those things and, and, and help yourself make better decisions and, and less biased because uh, you understand how your brain works. And that's my journey, but it might be different from, from others. Mm. Uh, and then exploring the role that technology can help you stay on track in that, in that exploration and that discovery, but also in that uh, augmentation of self, that makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, really, we're talking a lot about our ability to make decisions, our self-awareness of what's going on in our body, like all of that side of things. Do you agree, though, with Elon Musk's thoughts that he believes that for us to keep up with where machines are headed, we're going to have to meld and become connected to the cloud in some way or some, some way meld our minds with the machines, not just necessarily physically our bodies, but our minds are going to be connected. Do you subscribe to Elon Musk's thoughts there? No, I don't. <laughs> I actually um, been re- reading recently about the um, Internet of Things manifesto, and these are a group of people in Europe really actively trying to think about the ethical values of this uh, world of connected device. And uh, I myself, I've got a family of uh, four, and we travel a lot. I always seek 
places where there's no Wi-Fi when we go on holiday because I, I miss it. could see the effect that Wi-Fi has on our life uh, as a family, uh, the disconnect that happens because of that being constantly connected. So I go, I, I take us on boats, I take us camping in places where there's no Wi-Fi so we can re-experience what it is to be a normal family talking to each other without the devices. So I, in the opposite, I have a sort of a, a view that uh, we are going to try to create a space with the, where we are disconnected. Mm. So you think it'll be like when we're at work or in, it'll be part of our world that we are connected and then we'll purposely make a conscious decision, an effort to disconnect and, and have these maybe, you know, holidays, parks and islands of like no technology. Yeah, I, I found work and, and play and life, uh, that, 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 um, that separation is very blurry. So even when I might work, I remember working at the beach. I couldn't bring my laptop. It was going to be get sandy and all that. Yeah, the, the the whole idea of having a laptop on the on the beach, which they like to portray as the the laptop laptop lifestyle, it's not very practical. You no, it's not practical it. at all. And and the fact that you don't bring it, that means you're not reading your email, you're not having any yes. notification, nothing. If you think about switching off your phone as well, and then you have a conversation, and the conversation you're having is a lot richer, and you're stepping and you're walking, and we think, and we are more creative when we use our body. When we are not sitting at a computer with lots of email to attend, if you want to be creative, you've got to switch off all of this. Be in the nature, walk, use your body. Once you use your body and walk around or cycle or whatever it is that you do, you think a lot more clearly. I've taken up recently cycling and I, I realized that uh, cycling is doing me good, not just because it's getting me active and cycling, but it's actually also forcing me to move away from being on the screen. And I'm scanning the horizon because I have to for my safety. And that's good for my brain. And I turn up at work and my brain is ticking. But do you think the trend, I mean, I 100% agree with you, but do you think the trend, and especially as we get, I mean, yes, we've got our phones on us all the time, augmented reality, when it gets to the point that we've got contact lenses potentially in our eyes where there's a heads up display at any point, we could be walking through that forest and it's telling us in our face what that tree is and maybe telling us some sort of historical fact about what happened in this park in 1800s. Do you think that we're, we are consciously going to turn that stuff off or are we just, you know, will the older generations kind of remember what it was like to be disconnected? But a previous episode, we had um, an expert on, on Generation Z and how they've grown up with Wi-Fi and they've always been connected. And the question is, will they they know that they're overly connected. They, she was saying that they know that they're, they're, they're so connected and they look at the older generations in awe at our ability to turn off. And that shows that they don't know how to turn off. Do you think we're headed in that way, that it will be connected always? I'm a, maybe an optimist type of girl, <laughs> but uh, I think uh, as a human, we, we deeply know what it is, uh, what, what, what are the gain and what are the costs, and there are always the two sides. Uh, gains and costs. I was in the Redwood area uh, of uh, San Francisco recently, you know, this beautiful and more and humongous acacia. And the last thing you wanted to have in, when you were in that forest was actually have your phone and have some digital augmentation. With a friend, we were playing uh, at hugging trees because you feel 
how old those trees are. You want to connect with the with those trees in a physical sense. And we are absorbing too much information and not doing enough experiences. Experiences to be human is also very physical, very tactile. And we need to to um, make sure that we don't lose sight of that. Yes. So there's time for everything. You know, there's time for augmentation and that's fine. You know, like I'll be lost in the city. And yes, I would love to have my navigation aids on my smart glasses. I can find the place that I need to go. But I, I don't want to be connected all the time. I want to be able to switch off. Definitely. I, I think I think that's, uh, you know, moving into the future. I think we will have a lot of decisions on an ethical and, you know, deciding what we want society to look like. Uh, is It's not the technology. The, the, the technology is coming. It's going to be how we choose to respond to that and how we choose to make it part of our life. That's going to be the, the choice that we all have to make. And, and what I see as a trend uh, while we're talking about the future is that uh, in the for, me, for the last maybe 40 years, all we talked about was productivity and how you're going to do things faster, right? It was very, very efficiency and productivity driven. And what I see now is that, uh, yes, productivity is going to still be at play, but we're going to, wellness is going to become a much, a very strong area as well where we're going to start looking after ourselves as well as being productive. And that's where I've, I see the disconnection comes in. But that's where this kind of, uh, uh, and when you are connected, you want to learn more about your well-being and look after yourself and be on a journey of growth, learn about your mindset and, and, and again, move to area where you get a more growth mindset in order to continue that journey and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and that, this is where technology can also assist and help. Yes, definitely. I, well, I, I think that that would be a, a far better future if, if, if that comes to pass. I hope that that trend does come to pass and we are focused more on, on wellness and, and physical and mental health. I think it's very important for society. Let's kind of bring it back to today. What can people do today uh, if they want to get involved or, or be aware of what's happening? What would you recommend people do, uh, whether they're scientists researching in this area or wanting to research in this area, if they're an entrepreneur running their own business, or they're just, you know, an everyday person kind of just interested in this stuff, what would be your recommendations on where to start or what to do? Yeah, my recommendation is uh, find your tribe. If there's a topic that interests you, uh, I would highly recommend uh, going to some of the meetups and see who comes up there and if uh, the people that go there are, are your tribes and uh, because they are interested in the same thing that you are, let's say it's AR, VR, wearable tech, IoT, whatever it is, whether it's a technology or whether it's more on the, the aspect of um, leadership or, or growth. Um, there are some, uh, in Sydney, we're very lucky. We have this uh, uh, Sydney hub for all the startups and regularly every Friday they have Beach night, so I'd recommend going there and sussing up what the, the startups are doing. They are the forefront. They are the one really ahead of the of the game, uh, trying to to create the future. Go and listen to some pitch and reach out to anybody uh, you think that uh, they're doing something interesting that is relevant to your area. Entrepreneurs love to talk about their ideas, but they actually also love working and collaborating with others. They tend to be the sort of uh, people that are, know that you can only make a difference by working with others. It's not something, it's not a solo journey. It's only so far you can go alone, right? 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Let's kind of wrap up. And one of the questions I like to ask every person who comes on the show is when you think about the future, when you think about the future of humanity, you already mentioned that you're optimistic. So do you think we're headed in a positive direction? Could go anywhere. We're headed in a destructive direction. When you think to the future, 10, 20, 30, 100 years or longer into the future, are you excited? Are you scared? What, where are you at? I can see that there are errors that we're making and we're going to uncover those errors maybe too late. Uh, and I could see also some really um, positive things happening in terms of people understanding that we need to have asked the right questions around those technology and not just consuming them bluntly. So there is hope. But there is also uh, risks of, uh, of of doing the wrong thing, and that's how we evolve as a, as human, right? We we make mistakes. We hopefully learn from them. All my hope is is that we will learn uh, on time, basically. But uh, our history shows that, and we we tend to really learn our lesson when things go really badly. I have in mind, for example, the danger of uh, the magnetic field. You know, we all have Wi-Fi in our house. And yet it's actually quite dangerous for us. There's been science uh, evidence to suggest that this exposure to those uh, magnetic fields are actually really bad for us and affect even our DNA. And here we are consuming it. Been following some biohackers uh, recently and and the first thing they they recommend is make sure you actually, (laughs) from those radiation, those uh, emissions, because they are dangerous. So, yeah, in one way, we were aware of the risk of sugar and too salty food and fatty food and whatever. And, and there's so many, so much has been uncovered in the nutrition aspect. But I think with the digital and, the, and, and, and Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, we are yet to actually really embrace the fact that we are putting ourselves in danger in having those devices so close to us constantly. It would be like the next smoking, right? You know, there was a time that everyone thought smoking was healthy and good for you. And then now we all look at it and go, that's terrible. And I'm sure the future us will look at us. We see someone smoking and, you know, we look at them, you know, the, with the, we give them the bad look. But it's going to be the same probably in 10 or 15 years when it comes to those uh, devices, I would say. It's like you had Wi-Fi in your house. How could you do that? You used Bluetooth? What? What were you thinking? Exactly. Yeah. Mm. So that's that's the, the sort of end. It takes uh, 20 years before the science is in place and all that, and before the, the actual community become aware of those dangers, even though it, these things is published. If you go, you can find it very easily. It's published. It's been uh, demonstrated clearly that it's dangerous, but we're still not doing anything about it. Wow. Well, that sounds like potentially a future episode to, to find someone to talk about that. Yeah, or found uh, an invention that protects us from it so we can still use it without the, the, the negative effect, right? Because at the moment, we're just consuming it. And I think about... Uh, so yeah, my hope is that we will move away from being blunt consumers to actually more informed human. Absolutely. Make the right decision for ourselves, for our health, enjoy. Well, Leila, thank you so much for joining us. It's been mm. an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Future of Humanity podcast. To download the latest episode and find the transcript and various resources mentioned in today's episode, visit our website at foh.show. That's F-O-H as in Future of Humanity and show as in S-H-O-W. You can also, via our website, contact me with any feedback or suggestions for future episodes. So please do reach out. Now, if you haven't already subscribed, you can find the links to subscribe on all your favorite platforms at 
foh.show slash subscribe. That's foh.show slash subscribe. And more importantly, if you'd like to continue the conversation from today's episode and connect with other listeners, then you can join our free community at foh.show slash community, foh.show slash community. I look forward to seeing you there.